If you have your Bible with you, open it up or turn it on and go to the Gospel of John because um, we're in a series through the Gospel of John. Go to chapter 4, and today we're going to pick up in verse 19. And uh, I also would like to encourage you to find your worship bulletin, reach inside of it, and uh, find your message notes. The scripture passage is printed there for you, and there's a page on the back for you to take some notes uh, if you're a note taker. And uh, also take out your connection card and your offering envelope because we're going to be using all of those in today's message. You know, one of the major goals of your life and my life ought to be to one day end up in someone's testimonial, their testimony, or their life change story. Um, for example, there ought to be at least one person, maybe, maybe multiples, but there ought to be at least one person who, when they're giving their life change story, they would be able to call your name and say, so-and-so gave me my start in life. Or so-and-so believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. Or I I want you to meet the person who gave me more reasons to keep living my life than I could think of for taking my life. There there ought to be someone who can say when they're giving their, their life change story, Nobody else believed in me. No one else encouraged me, but so-and-so did. There ought, to be, there ought to be people who, when they give their testimony, maybe in a church setting, they would say, if it wasn't for Tara... I may have never gotten an invite to church. If it wasn't for Jeremy sharing his faith and his relationship with Christ with me, I might not know Jesus today. In fact, I I would say it like this. One of the proofs that you are really following Jesus is that you are investing your life into other people. It's it's that it's not just a bucket list item, but one of the things that you live for is to be a difference maker in someone else's life. You know, when you think about the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, the story that we've been unpacking for several weeks now, that's what Jesus is doing. Of course, we know that Jesus is the difference maker. But, but in this encounter with, um, with the Samaritan woman, she, she didn't know that. In, in, in fact, if you were talking to the Samaritan woman, if we could just interview her up here, if she was giving her, her testimony, her, her story, she, she might even say that, when I met Jesus at Jacob's well, it, it was just, well, it was an accident. I happened to be there, and 
he happened to be there and well then then the rest is history but it it wasn't an an accident uh, m- maybe from her perspective she thinks she's going to be at Jacob's well during a time of day when no one else is going to show up it's just going to be her she she was surprised when there was someone else there but this was a divine appointment that was prearranged in heaven. Jesus had this woman on her or on his calendar. He knew that he was going to be meeting with her. He had already determined that he was going to make a difference in that woman's life, and boy, does he. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at the the steps that Jesus took, the things that he did, the conversation that he had with this woman that broke down the barriers that existed between um, a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. There's this deep-seated, hundred-year-long prejudice between both of these groups of people, but Jesus breaks down those barriers. He breaks down gender barriers and cultural barriers, political barriers, because he's from one country and she's from another country. And more importantly, Jesus breaks down religious barriers, the things that were standing between him, the, the good news about God, hope, and this woman who desperately needed to know God. And in their conversation, Jesus introduced eternal life to her, and he's comparing eternal life and salvation to to water because this woman is there to draw water, and she just sort of gets wrapped up into the conversation, and like we're going to see today, she begins to trust again. She begins to have hope again. And when things are going great, from her perspective, Jesus, in about verse 16, asks her about the thing that she least wants to talk about. He, He asked her about her sex life. He started to talk to her about her sins. And he said, woman, go and get your husband. And her quick response back to him was, I don't have a husband. In fact, I've been married. Uh, well, actually, she just says, I, I have no husband. And instead of Jesus backing her into a corner where she has to come out and maybe make excuses or even tell him a lie, Jesus says, stop right there. He, he didn't say stop right there, but essentially he, he did. Hang on. And he finished the story. I know, I know the deal. You, you've been married five times and now you're living with a man who's not your husband. I, I, know, I know all about you. And that was the cliffhanging moment last week. And we pick up now in verse 19. Because of the way Jesus handled her, she said to Jesus again in verse 19, I can see that you are a prophet Now, I know at first glance that that seems like just a small verse or a small statement that she makes to Jesus, but it's huge. It proves that this woman is beginning to trust people again, and she's not trusting. 
She, she's learned over the years because of her background, because of who she is and in her community, she's, she's not accepted inside of the herd. Women don't want to have anything to do with her. And if men are talking to her, it's because they're working an angle. They'd like to get her home in bed with them. But Jesus is not like that at all. And he's having a good conversation with her and she's enjoying it. Yes, it's uncomfortable for her to have to think about her sins or talk about her sins, but because of the way Jesus handles her, you can tell that she's starting to trust. And she says, essentially, you are different. There was something about Jesus that that shows that he's a, a religious leader a teacher. His disciples who come up in a few verses here, they call him rabbi. That that's reserved for a religious teacher. And so Jesus is wearing something that sets him out as a religious teacher. Certainly the wisdom he seems to have about the scriptures and the things of God, it makes her think that this guy really knows what he's talking about. But beyond that, there's something about him that she is attracted to. And here's what I think it is. Jesus is genuine. In today's message, what I'd like to do is help you see some things that you can do to become a difference maker in someone else's life. And making a difference in someone's life begins with a genuine care and concern for them. Yes, she's on Jesus, uh, uh, his calendar. He has an appointment with her, but she's not just a, another notch in the handle of his six-gun uh, gospel uh, m- Gun where he, he's just trying to win her like she's a prize and he can claim her for his kingdom and then just, you know, put his gun away and say, job over. He's there because he cares. When as a Jew, he shouldn't. When as a Jew, he normally wouldn't. She's a nobody. We don't even know her name. She's at the bottom of the social totem pole. But Jesus cared about her. And it was genuine. And that's what allowed for this woman to be able to trust someone. Again, when she doesn't trust people, you can really hear that in the the next statement that she makes. Verse 20. Our ancestors, she's talking about her, her people, the Samaritans, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, and the mountain that she points to is Mount Gerizim. It's the place where the Samaritans set up their own cult-like worship center 
for God. They, they knew that the place where God was to be worshipped, the mountain, the holy mountain, was Mount Zion. But because Jews and Samaritans didn't get along with each other, they, they set up their own altars for worship. They even began to change the, the stories uh, from, from the Bible. And even though they knew that God was supposed to be worshipped on Mount Zion, they started saying that God should be worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And then it became folklore. And the, the people began to believe their own lies and pass those lies on down to their children. But she says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And if I can just add to that statement or flesh it out even more, what she's saying is, I'm not sure we can know what truth is. And maybe she's just asking, what is the truth? I grew up believing this. You grew up believing that. How can we really know what's right? Someone today might ask, well, the Baptists say that they have the answers, that they know what the real truth is. Uh, the Catholic Church say that they have all of the answers. Presbyterians, Methodists, Independents, there's, there, there's all sorts of different denominations or faiths inside of the Christian faith. What's the truth? And then even, even more specifically today in the world that we live in, you have people saying, well, you, you can't really know what truth is. I mean, you have the Christians over here saying this. You have Muslims that are saying that. You have the Buddhists that are, are talking about this. Uh, who knows? One of the things that I've learned as a pastor is that if you're going to make a spiritual difference in someone's life, you have to give them room to ask their questions. I mean, a part of the idea about Rocky River Church is to give people who don't really know what to do with Jesus or people who've never been to church at all, it's to give them a place to come and ask their spiritual questions without getting your dander up about it. Church should be a place where people who, who don't believe or people that don't know what to do with their faith or maybe people who, who are, are followers of Jesus but they're going through a, a season of doubt in their lives, they have to be able to come and ask the questions and say, I just don't understand this part. And then if you're going to make a difference in their lives, you, you have to just be patient with people. People have questions. Let them ask their questions. Jesus replied back to her, Woman, believe me that the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. If we could see this conversation being played out, I'm sure she's going, What? Because it would be logical, at least in her mind, for Jesus to say, oh, listen, you guys have it all wrong. She's heard you say that before, I'm sure. Oh, you guys, that's, you're wrong. You, 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 you can't worship God 
on that mountain. But now Jesus is saying, hey, woman, the time is coming. In fact, it's here right now when you won't go to Mount Gerizim to worship God, nor into the holy city of Jerusalem at Mount Zion to worship God. She must be thinking, what in the world have I gotten myself into? What kind of theological conversation is this? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. If you're going to be a difference maker in someone's life, you have to care enough about them to tell them the truth. And a part of what Jesus is saying to her is, listen, you've, you've put your whole life, you've, you've, you've banked your whole future on folklore. Everybody needs some somebody who will jump into the lies perhaps that they have based their life on and just say, in, in love, it doesn't have to be out of meanness, you're believing the wrong things. You're going the wrong way. You're making bad decisions you, you are you are gambling your whole eternity on folklore I really should be at an elementary school somewhere saying what I'm, I'm about to say, but I can't say it in an elementary school, so I have to say it to you. Parents, you have to care enough about your children to show them the way to go and insist that they go in that direction as long as you can insist on things in their lives. Now, I don't know if you guys are excited about your kids going back to school or not. I'm pretty sure they are not. But is school an option for your kids? I mean, do you let them decide if they're going to go to school or not? How about brushing their teeth? Do they get to decide if they're going to brush their teeth or not? I'm not saying that they might not lie about it and just wet the toothbrush and pretend for a little while that they did brush their teeth when they didn't. But when they, at night, when you tell them to brush their teeth before they go to bed, is that optional? Then why is going to church? I can't believe it when I hear parents say, well, we just don't want to force our faith on our kids. We, we want to let them make their own decisions. But you don't, you don't let them decide if you're going to pay the bills at home. 
You don't get them to uh, let them get to decide on other important things. Why in the name of I better not say it like that. Why in the world would you let them decide if they're going to go to church or not, or if they're going to be a part of a student ministry? That's your call. That's your decision. And then as a parent, you ought to care enough about them to point them toward the truth. You have no problem pointing them toward your favorite football team or baseball team or the kind of movies that you like. You ought to care enough about them to point them toward Jesus. And the same is true with other people that you are doing life with, people that you call friends. If you know the truth about Jesus, how how can you just let them flounder around in the mosh pit of spirituality and new age religion? How can you do that if you really care about them? They don't need someone to yell and scream at them. I'm not saying that you ought to divide your relationship up with, you know, sermons. But you ought to care enough about them to tell them the truth. You, the Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews, which means that the Messiah, which I think is ironic because Jesus is the Messiah, is from the Jews. Yet. It's a big word. It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, everything that I just said, sort of set that on the, or, or over to the side. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the, are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What in the world does all that mean? It means that the time is coming, Jesus says. In fact, it's here right now. Right now was nearly 2,000 years ago. When worshiping God won't be about an altar on Mount Gerizim or a temple in Jerusalem. It it won't be just about a race of people or a geographical location or a particular style of building. God will be available to everyone who will call on his name. And her response, I think, is, is interesting. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. Of course, he's standing there talking with her. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She's not buying fully what he's selling. This is just so much to understand. I, I don't have all the answers, sir. I, I, don't, I don't think you have all the answers, although I, I do see that you are a prophet. But, but one day when Messiah comes, then, then we'll understand all of these things. One day. When the authority figure comes, when God comes in the Messiah, he'll explain things 
and, and we'll be able to believe exactly what he is saying. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I'm he. What a moment. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. Jesus didn't go into the business district in Jerusalem and say to all of the merchants there, hey, guess what? I'm here. Messiah, I'm here. Roll out the red carpet. Let's get me a place to stay, a place fitting for a king. He, he didn't go to the mayor's house or uh, what the mayor would have probably been hanging out at the, at the city gates. He didn't go to the city gates and say to all the movers and the shakers there, hey, I'm here. I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. I'm, I'm the king. You guys are all dismissed. He didn't go to the synagogue. The one in Capernaum, kind of his hometown synagogue, he, he didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem where there were scribes who are listening as Pharisees or Sadducees are reading from the scrolls and the scribes are scribbling it down. They're copying it down. He, he didn't go and say, hey, I, I see that you guys have opened up the scrolls to Isaiah and the prophecies about the coming Messiah. Well, guess what? I'm here. It's because money and religion and politics, and the color of your skin. None of those things have anything to do with having a relationship with God. And most of those people were not open to him anyway. Jesus found a woman that was at the bottom of the totem pole where everyone is concerned. But she was open, she was available, and Jesus said to her, hope has come to your life. And then the conversation turns again. Just then his disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking to a woman, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? If you're going to be a difference maker in someone's life, you have to get ready for the naysayers. There are going to be people in your life that don't understand why you want to have anything to do with someone like her or someone like him. Why are you blowing your resources on that person? Why are you spending your life messing with that person? That's essentially what the disciples are thinking when they come up. Uh, amongst themselves, they're going, what in the world is Jesus doing talking with not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman? Who is she? To, to, to them, she's just like a nobody on their, um, 
the highway of their mission and life. She, she doesn't mean it. Why does Jesus even messing with this woman? There, there will be people that want to know why you're having anything at all to do with that kid in school or that student in your youth ministry. But then leaving her water jar, that's a powerful piece of information. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She didn't say it's the Messiah. She asked it as a question because she doesn't want to get into a debate with people who already don't like her. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. That she left her water jar with Jesus and went into the city. It would be easy to to think, oh, she's just a silly woman. She she forgot her water jar. She didn't just forget her her water jar. And John doesn't just drop details on us like this for us to just gloss right over. The water jar is the reason she's there to begin with. And yet she... She leaves the the water jar there. She goes back into the town. She doesn't have a jar full of water, but she has a life full of living water. She's been changed where it it matters. Things like that jar and her past, those things just don't mean what they once did. She's been set free, like we sang about today. She's been set free from those things. And she goes into her town where she's a nobody and says, hey, I've met the Messiah of God and he knows everything about me. He knows exactly what you know. The difference is he loves me. And what's she doing? She's, she's giving her testimony. Her life change story. She, she doesn't have a PowerPoint presentation, no graphics. There, there's no sermon. She doesn't have a band backing her up. She, she just says, I met someone who's changed my life. And you should meet him too. These people are on their way to see Jesus, to meet Him, to to hear Him. And next week, we'll see how many of their lives are changed too. But sort of the last thing I want to leave you with this morning is that when you make an investment in someone's life, when you become a part of their testimony, you are investing in all of the people that they will now invest their lives in. When I was, uh, I think, maybe a sophomore or junior at Gardner-Webb University, 
we had a, a guy who came in for a week of lectures. His name was Tony Campolo. Anybody ever heard of Tony Campolo? Show of hands. Um, he's a preacher, but he's also a sociologist. And he, he told a story during the week that has just stuck with me for all of these years. It's a story about a teacher friend of his from Virginia. She was a fourth grade teacher. I, I've heard other people tell the story probably because Tony's put it in a number of books, and he, uh, at least through the 90s, was sought after all over the world as a speaker. So I've heard different versions of this story, but this is the way Tony told the story about his friend, Miss Williams, fourth grade teacher. She tells about a little boy in her class named Norman. And she, she's not proud of, uh, of it when she talks about him, but she said, I hated this kid. Um, I, I don't know if, if you know people just that when you're around them, they kind of make your skin crawl a little bit. But, but for her, it was this fourth grade kid in her class. And she said, I didn't like him. Uh, he, he was unkempt. Uh, he, was, he was dirty. Most of the time he smelled. His hair was never combed. He, he slouched down in his desk, and when he talked, he just sort of mumbled. He was withdrawn and detached from the class, never prepared. Um, he, he just blew every assignment that he had. She, she said, my feelings toward this little boy were just so bad that I actually enjoyed marking up his papers with a red pen, putting X's on this and that, and then the F and a circle at the top. One day she was in the school office looking through the files of some of her other students, and she found a folder for Norman. And so she just started looking through it. She found notes from her first grade teacher, or from Norman's first grade teacher, second grade teacher, no notes from the third grade teacher, and then of course she's the fourth grade teacher. But in the first, in the first grade, that teacher noted at the end of the year that Norman is a good kid, normal, fair student. Um, that's about it. Second grade teacher makes a few notes. She noted that Norman's mother was terminally ill with cancer. He is... Um, Dirty most of the time when he comes to class. He's not prepared. Detached from the other kids. Withdrawn. I'm concerned. And then nothing from the third grade teacher. She filed the documents back away and then went back to class. A couple of weeks later, it was the last day of school before Christmas break. And all the kids came in that morning excited to get their Christmas break going, and uh, they had Christmas presents that their mom had bought and wrapped, and they all came in, gave them to the teacher. Norman came in with his gift, but it was uh, inside of a brown grocery bag. And the teacher, you know, was appreciative of all of the gifts that she was receiving. When Norman gave her his gift in the bag, the kids started laughing. She told him to stop. She reached inside and pulled out a half-empty bottle of ladies' perfume. 
So now the kids are laughing again. It's, it's used stuff. But she made them stop, and she sprayed some on herself, and she oohed and odd about how nice it smelled. And so then the other kids chimed in, yeah, it smells good. And anyway, they went on with their day. At the end of the day, school bell rang. All the kids jumped up, ran out, ready to start their Christmas break. But Norman stayed back and went up to the teacher once all the other students were gone. And he said, Miss Williams, I want to thank you for putting on that perfume. That was my mama's perfume. And all day long, you smelled like my mama. And he walked out. She shut and locked the door behind him. And she got down on her knees behind her desk, and she asked God to forgive her for the way that she feels toward that little boy. And she decided to make a difference in his life. So first day after Christmas break, she met him before school, took him into the restroom in the teacher's lounge, cleaned him up, put clean clothes on him. She did that every day for the rest of the fourth grade year and all through the fifth grade. At the end of school, she would make him stay after school to do all of his homework so that he could be prepared. And it didn't take long for this kid to turn around. His F's pretty quickly went to A's, and he was just doing great. Once he finished the fifth grade and went to middle school, she lost contact with him. But she got a letter several years later. It said, Dear Miss Williams, I just wanted to let you know that I'm graduating from high school next week, number three in my class. I've already been accepted to university. I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Norman. About four years later, she got another letter in the mail. It said, Dear Miss Williams, I'm graduating in the top 2% of my university class. I've been accepted to medical school. And I just wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Norman. A few years later, she got another letter in the mail that said, Dear Miss So-and-so, I've finished medical school finally. I have a residency that's starting in the fall. And I've fallen in love with a teacher. We're going to be, no, it wasn't his teacher. He met a girl in college that was a teacher. And he said, we're going to be married in the spring. You know that my mom died when I was in the second grade. My dad died about five years ago, and you're the only family I have left. It would mean a lot to me if you would be at my wedding and sit in the place of honor where my mama would have sat. Love, Norman. A little boy's life was changed because this woman decided to make a difference in his life. And now every person that he ever touched or dealt with or helped medically, she had a little something to do with that. So whose life are you investing in? Who who needs you to be a part of their life change story? Who who needs to sit around a circle at an AA meeting and say, I'm here tonight because she brought me or he made me come? Or I'm here today because this person cared about me when 
no one else did. I'm here because this person had Jesus' eyes on and they heard my conversations about my empty spirituality. And he or she loved me enough to tell me the truth about Jesus. Be a difference maker. Let's stand together for prayer. Jesus, indeed, you are the difference maker. You're not just a difference maker, but you're the one that makes the difference. Lord, I pray that you would live in our lives in such a way that we would just be compelled to be difference makers in the lives of others. Give us a genuine care and concern for the people around us. Don't don't let us live with our eyes wide shut to the people around us who, like this Samaritan woman, they need hope. They need help. Sometimes they need a handout, but they need a hand up. Again, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the hope of eternal life in and, and heaven. And like the song that we're going to sing here as we end our service today, we have the hope that when Jesus returns, we will fly away. Because with Jesus, we get forgiveness of our past, a purpose for today, and the promise of a future home in heaven. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Let's sing, and Steve, you dismiss us.